Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Sydney Volume 1 book, Dream to be Great, the Ben Lexan story. This one's for Bobby. She said she wanted a happy story. If you have a request, by the way, get in touch with us on Facebook. The name Robert Miller might not ring a bell, but the name that he later adopted, Ben Lexan, will be familiar to a lot of Australians and nautical Americans. Ben's wing keel design for the yacht Australia 2 secured our victory and beat the USA at their own game. It was the first non-American yacht to win the prestigious America's Cup in 132 years. And Ben's winged keel wasn't the only eccentric thing about the man. Certainly wasn't. Uh, and as we look closer at the life and times, if you like, of Ben Lexon, you start to understand that he was a, a very, very interesting character, to say the least. One of the blokes who put the syndicate together that took the boat to America to win the America's Cup, fellow by the name of Warren Jones, once said, we pay Ben to dream. Mm. It was a great line. I always thought that that line that the Kennedys were so good at using applied to him. You see things and you say why, but I dream things that never were and say why not. Uh, and, that, and that was very much Ben. I didn't realise till we started writing his story what an interesting Australian he was on so many levels. He had a fairly tough childhood, didn't he? Yeah, like so many uh, great Australians, he didn't have a great childhood. He grew up without a father. His mother shuffled him around to various relations and he finally ended up living with one of his grandfathers in Newcastle, which was really formative for him. And his name then wasn't Ben Lexon either. That came later and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, His name was Robert Clyde Miller, and as I said, he stayed with his grandfather. He left school at 14, worked at a metal foundry, then was an apprentice with the New South Wales Railways. On the weekends, he learned to sail, and it was a very formative part of his life, his time in Newcastle. Uh, He learned to sail dinghies and 16-footers, 16-foot skiffs, at the Newcastle and Lake Macquarie Dinghy Clubs. And the wind and the waves did the rest. He was hooked. Isn't it interesting? You you know, you wonder if he hadn't been shuffled off to that grandfather in Newcastle, if he'd been shuffled off to a grandfather, I don't know, Toowoomba. Yeah, well, you're unlikely to go sailing. Yeah, I wonder if he would have ever found his way there, you know, that old destiny. Would he have found that path to greatness? Well, his destiny, if you like, then moved him on to Sydney, where he learned to be a sailmaker. He built a catamaran of his own design. And he made a lasting friendship with a family of a sailing mate of his, a bloke by the name of Carl Reeves. He stayed with the Reeves family for quite a bit of time he was there and Carl's father had a library of technical books and sailing books Mm. that young Ben, or Bob as he was at the time, drew on and they stimulated his interest in sailing and building of boats. Mm, All contributors. They were, absolutely. And I believe it was about this time that the unconventional side of Bob started to emerge. Yeah, when he was staying with the Reeves family, a long-time sailing writer called Blue Robinson remembers that he slept on the couch, that he washed his trousers in the shower by wearing them in the shower. He ran around in them until they were dried afterwards. His other passion was the harmonica, uh, which he played in the shower while he was scrubbing his trousers. He's a little out there, old boss. So he was slightly different. Yeah, absolutely. A few years later, he was invited to Brisbane by a long-established boat builder in Brisbane, Norman Wright, to manage his sail loft. He was treated by the Wrights as part of their family when he was here again. But in 1958... 
he had a bad fall, a really nasty one. He fell from the top of a mast to the ground about 12 metres, which is a long way, yeah, and broke his back. Horrendous. While he was in hospital, Norman Wright made him up a drawing board and the implements with which to design. And the young Miller worked on his ideas while he lay in hospital with a broken back. One of those was a radical three-man 18-foot skiff. The result of it was called the Taipan. It worked so well that he designed another more radical boat called Venom, in which he won the 18-foot skiff world championship in 1961. So a lot of people have never heard about Bob Miller or Ben Lexon as he became, but he did have this magnificent sailing pedigree behind him. And he had these mentors yeah. to do that, to come up and give him that material, to have those books to refer to, to have the people supporting him. This really was an apprenticeship of kind, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. In that time, in the early 60s, he also joined forces with a bloke called Craig Whitworth. He'd been a crewman on Venom, and between them they set up a design and sailmaking operation in Sydney named Miller and Whitworth. And that was really the seeds of why he changed his name. They had a bit of a falling out, didn't they? They did. Eventually. Uh, Yeah, eventually. I mean, the business was internationally successful early on. He had a couple of appearances at Olympic Games, but the business with Whitworth didn't go well. He was frustrated that his name was still being used by the business, and so he decided to change it from Bob Miller. No one quite knows where the name came from, but one suggestion is that he asked a friend who worked for Reader's Digest to find out the least used surname within their membership, and it turned out to be Lexon, and the Ben was the name of his dog. But I'm not sure that that's why it happened, because later on he said that his lawyers advised him to change the name. Lexon's from a wife family, and Ben's, well, it's sort of like Bob. It's a good strong name, Lexon, you don't forget it. No, certainly don't forget it now after what he did. I've talked about his Olympic... Yes, I hear he was a bit odd over there too. (laughs) What year are we talking about? He was a reserve in Mexico City, in 1968, sailed Soling, and in 1972, the Olympics were in Munich. Remember the terrible Olympics oh, yes. of Munich, 72, but the sailing was held up at Kiel. Yeah, now just digressing slightly, those 1972 Olympics, there's been many a great book, movie, etc. written about those. You were there mm. when that happened. Now, this was about the Jewish wrestlers, was it? Yeah, it was the Jewish wrestling team right. that, that were killed by Arab terrorists. That's right. I instantly fell out of love with Munich when I got there, just to start with, with the Olympics, because I wasn't working, I was hitching around, and I booked a place at the youth hostel, as you did. We've all been there. Yeah. And when we got there, they told us, no, sorry, we've given your spots away to people who are prepared to pay more money, because the Olympics are on. That's shocking youth hostel spirit. So I know uh, most of the parks of Munich reasonably well, not that we were there (sighs) that long, because when this terrible thing happened, the the town just went so flat, we got out pretty much straight away. There was some terrific movies. One of them starred Australia's own Eric Banner. It was called Munich, and it was made, I think, 2005 or something around there, but it was a great movie if you get a chance to see it. So what did you actually do since you were a freeloner around Munich? Did you get called in to do a bit of journalism? No, I was well away by the time everybody here realised what was going on I was on my way I was holidaying so I didn't do anything oh okay well that's a boring story yeah it was that's okay (laughs) but I was there so was Ben and he was up at Keel okay so but he was safe in Keel he was and I guess that maybe up in Keel they were expecting something of the weirdisms of (laughs) of Ben which had preceded him I think the whole event was disturbed by what happened. Oh, it had to be. And that probably made the way people reacted a little bit differently. It was certainly different to the way it was in 68. I was talking about Blue Robinson before. He wrote a piece in which he said, Ben Lexon arrived at the Mexico Olympics as a reserve in 1968 with his passport in one pocket and a toothbrush in the other. 
He borrowed clothes from friends and during one dinner at the sailing team's hotel marched in with a 20-piece brass bound that he found on a street corner who had about six teeth between them. When they started playing, Ben, who was Bob Miller then, walked around the room with a tuba calling for money to be thrown in for the band. Oh, good on him. Uh, Blue went on to say, Ben Lexon was not a conventional man. <laughs> well, speaking of unconventional, there were bigger things coming for Ben, though, weren't there? There sure were. I was talking before about the two yachts that he designed, one of which he won a world championship in. The curious thing about the designs of those boats was that even then, and this is 25 years before the America's Cup win, aided so ably by the winged keel that he designed, on those boats at that point, that long ago, he was designing little wings on the keels of those boats. And so this was something that was picked up and taken by Alan Bond and others later on. So when the Bond Challenge was put together for the America's Cup, the New York Yacht Club had successfully defended it 21 times. The collaboration between Lexington and Bond would be defence number 22 in 104 years. The boat they built was Southern Cross, a 12-metre Racing yacht weighed 32 tonnes, had a 30 metre high mast. She wasn't the first yacht we'd sent across the Pacific to challenge the Americans. And interest mounted everywhere in us winning the old mug, as they called it. In 1962, Gretel had been there, Dame Patty in 67, Gretel II in 1970. And now this was the West Australian challenge of Bond and Lexon and others. Year after year, they'd send a boat over and we'd get flogged again. The most that any boat had run was two until Australia 2 went over. If Bond and company were to beat the Americans, they had to have something that was a bit different and something was radical in design. And the best word to describe what Ben Lexon came up with is slippery. Um, We always talk about the wing keel, but he talked about the whole boat and the way that the top sides flared down to a very short space above the waterline. The thing was just designed for speed not just the wing keel but if you ask people what they remember about that morning in 1983 when we all sat around our tv sets watching the final race um, in this series where we had won more races against the americans than anybody else had and they'll tell you the thing that won it for us was ben lexon and the wing Wing keel And I think you'll find most of us remember Bob Hawke. Any boss who <coughs> sacks his employee today is a bum. Is a bum. There's something like that, remember? He was so yeah. excited about it. And his excitement was so infectious that, you know, it was a huge day. It was such a huge morning. I remember it well. I worked up on Mount Cutha where the television stations are in those days and we were at the bottom of the mountain and all the crews, people that worked on our unit, were making their way into work when this race was on. None of them got there. They all ended up at our place. So we had this huge room full of people screaming at the television set as this last race got underway. Amazing. I remember it still. We won the start and then Liberty uh, took over and built up a, a fairly big lead. By the second last leg of the race, the breeze had dropped right off. The Australians felt they had a good chance. Connor, the American skipper, had manipulated, I think manipulated, his days off to get the best weather that suited his boat. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. The Australians thought as soon as the wind dropped a bit, we had a chance, and they were right. By the last turn, Australia 2 had overtaken Liberty, and they were heading for home. It was then that the most remarkable duel probably ever in America's Cup racing happened. A remarkable tacking duel, more than 50 changes of direction until both boats ended up out in the spectator fleet and just about off the course. Mm. When Australia 2 tacked the final time, she was four boat lengths ahead of America and a victory from the crew down under 
<laughs> seemed inevitable. I remember the bloke, John Radler, was calling the race on Macquarie Radio. His actual words, I'll read them because it's easy, though I can't remember them perfectly. Uh, stand up, Australia, stand up, Australia, and give these boys a cheer. We're looking for the smoke at any moment. They're about to do it. They're about to cross the line. They make the final move. They've done it. Australia, too, has done it. They've won the America's Cup. They've done it. They've done it. How exciting. <laughs> and the room exploded. Yeah. Uh, and it was the same all over the place. And you mentioned Hawkey yeah. um, in the West uh, with that crazy coat on, uh, watching the race. Oh, it's just an amazing piece of history. Yeah. So, of course, the Prime Minister calling it the finest moment in Australian sports history. To be precise, he said, I'm drowned in champagne. I just want to say to Bondi, to Jones, to Bertrand, the crew were not forgetting that marvellous Australian, Ben Lexon that there's not many occasions when an Australian Prime Minister can speak for all Australians, but I don't think there's been a greater moment of pride for Australia than in what you've done. It was the first time that the America's Cup had changed hands since the crew of America took it away from the English yacht at Cowes in 1851. So it really was quite a remarkable international record to hold. What a lovely tribute to Ben for the Prime Minister to say that. Yeah. He was made an order of Australia just after that and the Men at Work anthem, We Come From a Land Down Under, echoed across the land. We're still playing it today. We haven't spoken about Ben's relationships. Did he ever marry or have any kids? Ben's personal life was pretty much just that, personal. He didn't talk about it a lot. He married for the first time in November of 1962 when he was working with Norman Wright in Brisbane. His wife Dorothy Green and Ben didn't have any children. They were divorced in 1969. In 1976 at the registry office on the Isle of Wight, in the UK, he married Yvonne Wise, who had two children. Yvonne and the children both survived. Ben, Yvonne died in Sydney in September of 2015. Ben passed away suddenly from myocardial infarction in a Sydney hospital near his manly home on the 1st of May 1988. He'd had a heart attack the day before. He was just 52 years old. Wow, young man. Big yeah. achiever. Yeah. And by way of recognition, it took nearly a quarter of a century, but he was posthumously inducted into the America's Cup Hall of Fame in 2006. But I don't think the delay would have worried him that much. <laughs> he was a pretty cool sort of a character. But the Americans were always a little suspicious about the wing kill, were they not? <laughs> Yeah, the New York Yacht Club claimed that Australia 2 was not a legal 12-metre yacht and the design was not Australian because the testing for the boat had been done in the Netherlands. There was a hearing on that and when the ruling came down it confirmed that Australia 2 complied with both the America's Cup rules and the 12-metre class. In 2009, 11 years after Ben Lexen's death, the controversy rose its head again when Dutch naval architect Peter van Usenen claimed that he and a Dutch aerodynamic designer had created the wing keel and that Australia too broke the America's Cup rules because it wasn't designed by a citizen of the country that the boat represented. Mm. Now Bertram, who was the skipper of Australia too of course, and John Longley, who was a member of the team, flew to the defence of Ben Lexon and yachting journalist Rob Mundell, who anybody who's followed the sport at all would know, revealed that Alan Bond and Ben Lexon had had extensive correspondence about the wing keel and that it was Lexon's design and we talked about it with his earlier yachts as well so it had been rattling around in his head for 25 years. And there was a record of that correspondence. Yeah absolutely. Fantastic. I suppose every yacht that ever competed thereafter had a wing keel. (laughs) Well I don't think they have. I'm not sure I'm not up on my yachting architecture (laughs) probably as much as I should be but it was a one-off and certainly it was a remarkable event.
why would you risk not doing it again? I'd have everything winged. I'd have the whole lot winged. Wing, everything will have a wing. Wing keel and yeah. everything. So tell us then, where is Ben Berry? Okay. Ben's memorial plaque, and often you come across plaques that you think uh, really underrepresent the person that they show. Mm. And such is the case, I reckon, with Ben's memorial stone. It's in the French's Forest Bushland Cemetery, and we've got the details of how to find it in the book. But when you find it, it's so small, yeah. and you think, here was this great man, and it should have been bigger, and had wing keels or something. I felt like that too. I felt like there should be some sort of national monument here and he's lying next to Avon, I believe as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I loved some of the things that he said to American media while he was there and in the pressure cooker atmosphere of Rhode Island just before that final race in 1983, he's reported in the US paper, the Chicago Tribune, as saying, why you Yanks are bloody neurotic about that ugly old cup, we'll win it back, then give it back to you for 50 cents. It might be great to win the cup, but I don't really care. We've won three races and that's never been done before. Now I just want to go home and go windsurfing. Springtime is just beginning at home. The smells are so beautiful. The wisteria is just coming out. The bees are flying around. It'll be so lovely. It'll be the best summer of my life. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute and leave a good rating. You have been listening to a story from Grave Tales the series, available on paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or put together your own group and come along with us on our great ocean road tour.